All right, so last week we talked about finding comfort in God's Word, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, and we did that because of Luke chapter 3. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, we have John the Baptist, he comes on the scene, and John the Baptist coming on the scene is a pretty big deal because when he came on, when he was getting ready to be born as a baby, his dad was the first person in like 400 years to have heard from God. Angel just pops in there, and it's kind of one of those moments where obviously anytime an angel shows up, there's a scream, there's a reaction, and then the angel's like, hey, don't be afraid. And it's amazing that the angels that say that are the messengers that are bringing a word, uh, and it's a word that means to bring good news. The, the good news that we share is the gospel. That, that word uh, in the Greek of good news is the same good news that a messenger of God would bring if he was coming to bring good tidings, right? Uh, Mary, whenever Jesus was born, hey, there's this good tidings that I'm bringing as an angel that's coming to share with you. And so John the Baptist is the same good news is being given to his dad. So John grows up and he gets to wear camel's hair. He gets to eat locusts and wild honey. And he is quite the preacher. Uh, the biggest thing about him is I think he probably was out there preaching in the wilderness and he was barefoot. And just imagine a group of people that would be so blown away by a preacher that preaches barefoot. It's amazing. It's like, it's the easiest way to get people to come watch you preach. They get to share around the community. There's this guy out there in the wilderness. He's wearing camel's hair. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And sometimes he preaches barefoot. And people are like, no way. He preaches barefoot. We should go look at him, right? And so, uh, so anyways, there's this guy and he comes forth with this message. And it's the idea of Isaiah chapter 40, where a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But whenever that voice is crying out, the ultimate message that the voice has to bring is a message that there will be comfort for God's people. And God's people is what needs to be defined, okay, but there's going to be comfort for anyone that falls under the line of being God's people. And so that's what John ultimately brings, is this message of comfort. And where there's a message of comfort, there's also a message of conviction. There has to be both. And so this is where we get to have that here coming up. Make a change that will last forever. There's going to be a change that usually only comes when you're convicted of something. Uh, the new year, how many have already broken that resolution that you had, right, January 1st? We're getting into it, a new month, right? Uh, so it's about that time where we start to look back and say, oh, well, I'll fix it next year, right? Um, so it's about that time where our change maybe has not lasted. But right now, we're going to look at a change that can last forever. And this is where John breaks in. So let's really quick, we're going to look through John, uh, Luke chapter 3, we're going to move on from that Isaiah 40 reference, uh, and we're going to start in verse 7 of Luke chapter 3. So here's, uh, here's where the crowds, okay, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, All right, you, you vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now that's an interesting way to welcome anybody that's coming in. Um, but I think that it's important because just like it maybe got your attention, that's what he was doing. Um, he was taking an opportunity to get attention, right? Somebody, you got a crowd first off that's coming down to watch you or to come take part of baptism. And the initial thing that John says is, man, you brood of snakes. Now let's think about that snake. You got Old Testament references to snakes, some good, some bad, right? Um, Genesis, you got the Old Testament reference to the serpent that's in the garden that leads Adam and Eve, and he comes forth and he speaks to Eve, and he's like, oh, you can eat that fruit. You know, maybe you've heard that story. If you've not heard that story, I encourage you, Genesis 1, you'll get to see the perfection get created. Genesis 2, you'll get to see man get placed in the middle of that perfection. And then Genesis 3, so literally three chapters in, you can see the first reference to this a snake, right? Um, so being called a snake might not have been the best thing um, to, to call somebody, but he calls them a snake. They're serpents, right? What are you doing coming down here? Um, and so there's a reference to a snake. But you also have references to a snake where Moses is in the wilderness. The people of God have completely made God just so angry with them. He's like, that's it. I'm done. He sends forth this group, this herd, I guess. I don't know what you would call it. Maybe it's a brood, right? But anyways, it's whatever they're of snakes. And they go among the people and they begin to bite them. And that poison sets in and they begin to die. And God says, you know what? If you'll take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and lift it up, anyone that looks at that bronze serpent will be healed. They will not die of the poisonous bite that they've received. 
And so you do have a reference where there are snakes, and they're fighting the people, and they're dying, but then there's also a snake that gets lifted up as a bronze serpent, and anyone that looks to that snake shall live. Right, So then you have a reference to a snake that isn't necessarily the worst reference to make. It wouldn't be bad to be the serpent that's lifted up in the wilderness, and now you have the ability to live. So John's in the middle of this wilderness. These crowds have found him as he's baptizing people in the Jordan River, and they are just coming down in droves. And in Luke chapter 3, we have the crowds came to John for baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, if you were to look back at Matthew chapter 3, you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to John to observe his baptism. So he's going to, they're coming, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come, the religious leaders come to watch him baptize, and these people in the wilderness come to be baptized, but in both moments, John refers to them, the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the crowds that are coming, both times he refers to them as serpents, vipers. He says this exact phrase, you brood of snakes or you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Both receive the same exact uh, admonishment from John, okay? And you're going to see this is actually a really fun phrase. It's going to get, it's going to be more developed as we move along, but I do want you to hold in. So let me make sure I didn't miss anything here from my notes because I do highlight, circle, and all that. Uh, but at the same time, I think that it is also important to point out, yep, that poisonous snakes is the reference, okay? And if you think about your own life, or now, it's always easier to judge our neighbor. Okay, so think about the person sitting next to you. And if you're sitting next to your spouse, look the opposite direction for just a moment, right? All right? Um, so poisonous snakes. Is there moments in your life where you've been around somebody that has been a poisonous snake in your life? Just ruined it. You thought, oh, man, this is a beautiful day. You wake up on the right side of the bed. You head out the door, maybe not even that far. And then all of a sudden, just that person pours some poison into your life. It courses through your veins, and it ruins your day. And so now you're bent on ruining everybody else's, right? So there's poisonous snake moments in our life. So what John says is not necessarily wrong. He says you are, as people, poisonous snakes. You are bent on, even though you might be pretty to look at, some snakes are pretty to look at, not necessarily in my life, I'd kill it, but some snakes are pretty to look at, but at the same time, that snake that might be pretty to look at, if it bites you, it's gonna, it could cause major damage, all right? And it's not necessarily even that you're going to die right away. It can be a slow, painful, agonizing death where your blood just slowly stops moving and then down you drop, right? You might not make it very far or you might make a good long walk out of it, but unless you get that poison, unless you get an antidote, uh, that's a bad thing in your life to be bitten by a poisonous snake. And so he compares people to poisonous snakes. Now, you might not think that you're a poisonous snake, but you could ask someone, and they might tell you that you've been one in their life before, right? If you've been a toddler and you had parents, you were a poisonous snake at some point in their life. I guarantee it, all right? You literally drained the life from your parents at one point in your life. All right, so just know everybody's been a brood of snakes at one point. So these brood of snakes come down, uh, and this is what John references them as, and they're coming down, but this brood is coming to, he says, who's warned you to flee this coming wrath? Who said something that was so important in your life that you've come down here to be baptized, that you've come to me? Because this is, you know my message, and we'll get to that in just a second. He says, you know my message, and you know that the message is to flee what is coming, and there is wrath that is coming. So who warned you to do that? Who prompted you? And if you've not been prompted by somebody, because a lot of times, don't we as a crowd, a crowd starts walking. Have you ever been in like uh, a situation where the crowd starts walking and you just follow them? You're like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Where are you going? I don't know. But it's good idea. Everyone's going that way, right? You ever been in that moment? Everybody's going a specific direction or thinking a certain way, and you just found yourself all of a sudden doing that exact same thing. And then after a while, you might think to yourself, why am I doing this? This doesn't make any sense, right? You ever been there? Uh, my favorite video online right now that I get to see, it pops up every so often on Instagram or TikTok or, you know, if you watch that. Um, but you scroll, and you see it, and then there's this mom, and she walks into the garage, she got her, I don't know how old son behind her. He's an adult. That's all I know. Um, screams like a kid, but he's an adult. So she walks in, and she opens the garbage can, and she just yells out a scream. She freaks out in the garage, hands waving. Ah! 
She runs. She's like, she walks over again. She screams again. So at this point now, the son's screaming. Now, he's not looked in the trash can, but he's still screaming. And then all of a sudden, she runs out, closes the garage door, just slams it shut and locks it on him. And he's banging, Mom, 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 open the door. He's a grown adult. But anyways, so... Now, the point is, is that there's nothing in the trash can. She had a video, obviously, recording him because she really wanted to see his reaction, and she got it. But just by simply acting like there was a problem, she's able to convince her son that there's a problem. You can do the same thing in a crowd. You can look up at the sky and just start pointing, and I bet you people will look, right? Um, we'll, we can do that. There's times where you might find yourself catching just looking out at the waves because you really like the wa- look at the waves and you notice your neighbor's looking out there like, you see dolphins or what's the point? You know, is it a boat? I don't know. I, that'd be actually pretty cool if there was a boat out there right now. I'd feel bad for them, but it'd be cool. All right, so but you'd, you'd find yourself maybe staring and you'd get caught up in crowd moments. But crowd moments can also happen in moments like this where all of a sudden everybody's kind of going to see John. I'll go see John. He's barefoot. He's locusts. I don't know. There's something. He's good marketing. I don't. Let's go check him out. Yeah. Let's give him a shot. So they walk down. Now he's got a crowd coming to him, and his initial reaction is say, "Hey, Brutus snakes. Who warned you?" Now some people in the crowd were warned, and they knew while they were going down. I think. But there are others that in the crowd that have no no clue why they're here. And you might be sitting here this morning. You have no clue why you're here. You got drugged to church. All right. Maybe. Maybe not. And maybe in the future, you might drag someone to church with you, and then all of a sudden, they're like, why am I even here? This is applying to them very well right now. So if you're here and you have no clue why you're here, who warned you to come? Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And the reality of that statement is there is wrath coming. So just catch that. There is wrath coming. John's kind of saying, listen, I've been preaching about this coming wrath. Who warned you about it? I didn't. I don't remember you in the marketplace. I didn't tell you to come down and get baptized. We didn't have a discussion yet. So who warned you to come my direction? So here we go. John's going to speak into that now. He says, now that I've got your attention, you brood of snakes that have come to flee the coming wrath, right? You're wondering what all this is about. Prove by the way that you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. So there's what repentance is, to repent of sins and turn to God. To go from going one direction to turn to God means repenting of sins means that my sins is taking me in a direction that's opposite of God. So he lays it out very easily what repenting of sins looks like. It's a complete turn back to God. And like like I said last week, it's not a turn that looks like, oh, I think I'm going to turn 90 degrees toward God because then you're still not turned to God. It's not, I'm going to turn 100 degrees degrees toward God, and eventually maybe I'll kind of get to him. It's a full 180. It's a direct line in one direction and turning and going back the opposite direction. And so who warned you? uh, Who said that you should repent of your sins and turn to God? He says, prove by your life that this is the way you're feeling. So there's a change that happens because of a crowd, but there's also a change that can happen just like an outward, like I'm a a conviction, like I need to make a, a change in my life. I've noticed that there's something wrong with me, how I'm living. Maybe I realize that God is righteous and I want to live for him, so I'm going to kind of make these adjustments in my life. Maybe to be approved by God is the idea in that. I want God to like me, um, so I'm going to start doing the things that God would want me to do as I walk closer to him. So maybe I can feel a little bit more justified as I get closer to God's throne. I'm going to do these right things. I'm going to serve on Sunday. I might do a children's church. I might open up my house. I might feed the poor. I might feed the hungry. I might help out the poor. I might give to a charity, right? Whatever it is, I'm going to do these things as I walk closer to God so I can be approved, right? Don't just say to each other, so John's kind of giving them this idea, right? Like, you got to change your life as you walk closer to God. This is kind of the mentality that he's passing along. He says, don't just say that, hey, we're safe, but we're descendants of Abraham. Because the, the, the reality of what was going on in their life was, I can walk any direction I want because Abraham's ultimately my daddy, right? If they're a Jew, I can rely on the blessing of Abraham to say, well, that means I'm going to be blessed by God. I'm going to be accepted by God because I'm a child of Abraham. And John's like, no, no, no. There has to be an outward change, okay? You have to show that you are different, but at the same time, you can't just claim that you're a descendant of Abraham. Things are about to change, The way that you've lived, what you've been taught by the religious leaders, all that's about to change. You can't just claim your your descendants from Abraham. Uh, That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham 
from these very stones. Remember, he's baptizing in the Jordan River, so he's literally surrounded by stones. So I'd imagine at that, he has in a moment where he can just point to every single stone in front of him and say, literally, any of these can be created into descendants of Abraham if God wanted. So what's also important about that is that the Jewish mentality of what they were living in in their culture was that if I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm special, right? Everybody else around me is a dirty dog, okay? They matter very little. They will not be blessed the same way I'm going to be blessed. God could care less about them than anything. And think about that. God could care less about them, and yet John points at the stones that they're literally walking on And he says, he can make a child of Abraham out of those. The stones that your feet are trampling right now can be turned into children of Abraham. Which means that what you consider to be very minute, little, and don't care anything about, God can take that exact thing and turn it into a child of Abraham. So he's about to shift. He's shifting the mentality. He's saying something big is coming, and God is about to make children of Abraham that you never imagined that God would do this. You couldn't even begin to fathom that God could do this, but he's about to do it. So verse 9, even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So again, we've got this idea of judgment. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath, right? And John's got this picture, this image of an axe that sits at the, the base of a tree. Now, if you take an axe and you chop, chop off a limb, that's not a big deal, right? Limb can grow back, uh, the tree can continue to thrive. But if you take an axe and you chop it down right at the roots of the trees, you just completely cut it out, it's gone. It's good for nothing, Okay. And so that, at that point, that's why he says, hey, it's going to be thrown into fire. So it's, it's, it's worthless. So you're becoming firewood. Right now, God is ready to do this in your life. You as a tree that expect that you're planted, that you're rooted, that you're going to be fine, God is going to cut you out at this moment coming up. And that's a big deal for people, right? People that have been living their entire lives, a culture that's been living its entire life up to this point, thinking that they're blessed by God and everything is fine. They're waiting on the Messiah. Daniel's prophecy in the Old Testament said 70, what is it, 70 years? No, 70 times 7? 70 times 7? They're waiting on this moment coming up where God is going to return, the Messiah is going to return. And so the people, if they knew Daniel's prophecy, they know that, hey, it's getting kind of close to time. The Messiah is going to return. And so they're feeling very comfortable and they're waiting in the middle of Roman rule for the Messiah to return. And so being comfortable and sitting and waiting for the Messiah to return, you're probably not doing a whole lot. You don't want to stir the pot, right? You don't want to be all of a sudden just like randomly killed. You don't want to kind of lie low and you want to wait for God to send that Messiah because then you'll rally behind him. But I'm not going to do anything in the meantime. I'm not going to go above and beyond. And John's like, hey, listen, it's different than what you think. Just because you're a child of Abraham does not matter. God's got an axe, and he's ready to chop you down. And he's wanting to see fruit. And immediately, we in this day and age right now today, as it says right now today, we have somebody's words that we can rely on, that we can look to this passage. And we can say, do I produce fruit? And you can say, well, who called me to produce fruit? We know that Jesus Christ called us to produce fruit, did he not? I think in John chapter 10, you've got Jesus says, I'm the vine, and you're the branches, and he that remains in me will produce much fruit. So the fact that these people are relying on their own ancestry and producing fruit is not necessarily what, that's that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for something bigger, okay, we know that. But here John speaks and he's like, your fruit matters. It shows your repentant heart. It shows who you are. It shows that you've changed from the outside. And we want to know that there's been an outward change. Okay, we got to see an outward change to know that you were serious about that commitment that you made to God. Because the Messiah is coming. Okay, but you've got to be serious about that commitment that you've made to God. So John's literally preparing these people and tearing down the expectations that they have for what they think God wants from them. 
He's not wanting them to lie low. He's not wanting them to just sit in their, their fact that they're children of Abraham. He's not wanting any of that. What he's wanting is he's wanting to see there's truly a repentant heart that's desiring what God wants in their life, and there should be an outward change. And we should be able to see that. And so, naturally, what would be the question that would come with John saying to you, there should be an outward change, or you need to change? The question should be, well, how do I change, right? And this is what the crowds ask. The crowds say, well, what should we do? What is, how does this change look? What am I supposed to do to show that there's been an outward change? And so, this is maybe Jews that are asking it at this point. But either way, they say, what should we do? So John replies, and he says, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. Now, that means I have one shirt, right? That's, I mean, that's asking a lot. That's half of what I own as far as clothing, right? That's a little scary. It means laundry every night versus every other night, right? All right, so uh, if there are two shirts, give one to the poor. Maybe your best shirt. I don't know if he said that. I don't know if it means best shirt in there, but thinking he might have meant give your better shirt to the poor. But he says, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. And if you have food, share it with those who are hungry. So invite that person in or go on out. But either way, take the food that you have for today and share it with those that are hungry for today. So make an effort to share what it is that you have. Uh, And notice it doesn't say with the hungry Jewish people around you. It doesn't say with the poor Jewish people around you. It literally just says, if you come across someone that's poor and needs a shirt, give it to them. A Jews, there's, there's no designation. If you come across someone that's hungry, feed them. No designation. The Samaritan, yeah. Now that would have really, really caused some issues. He should have said it there, because then that would have really caused a riot. But either way, he just says the hungry, leaves it open-ended. So then you think, all right, so the people have been given this task that they're supposed to do. And the most of the people in the crowd might have been content with that. All right, I can share. Yeah, I'll share a shirt. I'll share, you know, I'll share this. But there's further conviction in the crowd than just the people in the crowd. There's individuals within the crowd that are being convicted as well, that have maybe a different reputation in the community. And so in that moment, they're prompted, probably by the Holy Spirit, by God, whatever it is, but they're prompted and they speak up. So a corrupt tax collector's. Even the corrupt tax collectors, who were hated by everybody, right, came to be baptized. Not came to watch the baptism like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They came to be baptized. And when they came to be baptized, they asked, teacher, what should we do? So this is the second time that a group is asking, what should we do? He replied this, collect no more taxes than the government requires. So be fair to people. Okay, don't try to cheat them out. Don't swindle them. Don't do what literally every single person in your profession is doing to get ahead. Don't try to cheat anybody. So no matter what job you have, the way that we could apply this to now, is no matter what job you have, look around you. And if you notice that something is unfair and people are cheating other people, don't do that. You personally, the conviction is this, don't cheat people out of their money. Okay, be fair in the way that you deal your business. And each of these tax collectors was in charge of their business. All they had to do was turn over to the Roman government what they required, and anything else that they took on top, they could take on top. So they could demand anything they wanted from you. And we see that whenever we deal as pilots, the pilots fly to and from Haiti at missionary flights, they see that on a consistent basis. Whenever they land, now that's not only in Haiti, but that's just one of the easy areas that I'm able to point to and say, oh, this happens in Haiti. You land... And people will think to themselves, you know what? The government actually doesn't pay me because there's many times where they'll go months without payment. So the government's not paying me. I've got to feed my family. I'm going to charge more than what I know I'm supposed to so I can get money to feed my family. So what about that? Doesn't that seem like, oh, okay, that's a good thing. Yeah, what if the Roman government wasn't paying these tax collectors fairly and they weren't able to get their wages? And so, yeah, they should be taking more money because their family's hungry. Well, John doesn't even give that as an opportunity. He says the moral thing to do is don't collect more than the government requires. That's the moral thing to do, and you stick to that moral principle. So there's an easy way to apply. Now, you thought it was going to be harder than that, didn't you? That's an easy way to apply it. But when everybody else is doing it, and you're the only tax collector that's there, that's uh, living in that city that came to be baptized by John, and literally all your friends are like, dude, why don't you collect an extra 50%? You know you can. Now you get an opportunity to say, well... I'm different because God wants me to be different. 
opportunity for testimony. Verse 14, what should we do? Some soldiers asked him. These soldiers come forward. Now that would have made the crowd a little nervous. Some soldiers walking in. Tell me you wouldn't be a little nervous right now if all of a sudden in the back room there was just a police officer hanging out back there. You'd be like, oh, what do we do? <laughs> why, is he here? why is he watching? We've had that happen before. They literally just want to hear the message. Okay? <laughs> they enjoy worshiping with us. That's why they stand in the back room. So, but they're soldiers that have come, and they're asking, what should we do? Which means that they are there to be baptized. That's why they're there. What should we do? We want to make a change in our life which that's unheard of. So this is Roman soldiers asking this, which means they're not Jewish, which means that why are they there? Pharisees and the Sadducees were probably appalled. They would have been like, oh, it's a Roman soldier. Let me distance myself so I don't get filth on me. You know, like that would have been the mentality of the people there. There's a Roman soldier. I don't want anything to do with him. But at the same time, they come to John, and John says, you know what? Don't extort money or make false accusations. So in other words, don't try to hassle around your power and pull it on somebody else to get the money that you want from them. Because you could take anything you wanted as a Roman soldier. You walk up, you wanted that coat, you could take the coat. You wanted the extra shirt, you could take the extra shirt. You wanted the house, you could get in if you wanted to. You could probably take that house, it wouldn't be a big deal, right? If you had the desire for something, you could take it and you could demand it of somebody and you be they better give it to you or else, you know what, you could use force, you could use brute force and you could take it. And so these Roman soldiers would do that. And so here we are, John says, hey, don't extort money, but he's also saying don't make false accusations, not against other people, not against your fellow soldiers to get ahead. Think about it, if you want to get up to an officer ranking and you and another guy are going at it and you're trying to get officer ranking, yeah, you could just make up a lie about them and maybe you can get ahead. So he's saying don't do that. If you have the opportunity, don't make a false accusation about someone. And he also says this, be content with your pay. And that be content with your pay is also kind of a, don't stir up a mutiny. Don't, among everybody else, kind of grumble and say, oh, man, they don't really pay us a lot. We're in the worst part of Jerusalem, and they're not paying us enough. Did you hear your buddy the other day? He got killed by a zealot, stabbed right through the armor, and they're not going to increase our pay at all. That's awful. We could at least divvy up his pay. They're not going to send us another soldier for a while. He says, don't, don't, don't complain about, grumble about your position, your pay, and don't extort anything extra from anybody else. Don't make false accusations. I think by this point, John has covered anywhere, anybody in this room that has any sort of job, and it can be a lot, you're covered here, okay? So you've got an opportunity to be changed just with the way that you maybe interact in the community. Whether you have a job, whether you give, whether you come across somebody, there's an opportunity to show that you've changed, okay? So there's a change, an outward change that others can see. And so then with John's preaching, everybody's expecting right now the Messiah. Like I said, Daniel's timeline had kind of come up. We're at that point. Messiah should be here. So everybody's expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. <coughs> That's an important question, right? John, you're preaching this. You're different. You're barefoot. We like you. You've got crowds. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees are a little interested in you. Right? You're baptizing people, you're having us repent, and you know that you're preaching that God's wrath is coming. That's an intriguing message. We think you might be the guy, and uh, even if they're holding it in their hearts, if they're saying it out loud, if his disciples are questioning him, because John had guys that were with him helping him baptize, and they were his disciples going out among the crowds, so they were even maybe questioning, is this the guy? And so John answers their question like this, I baptize you with water. Okay, we baptize you with water. You might dunk you out there in the, uh, the ocean over there. Not today. It would be an interesting day. But I baptize you with water. But someone's coming soon who is greater than I am. So John says, I provide for you the ability to show an outward change of what you're feeling inside. So you feel like you want to change for God? Good. Now let's show an outward change of that that you can reference and that people can hold you accountable to. If you're a soldier, you're going to act differently. If you're not acting differently, it means that you weren't serious about your desire to change for God. If you're in the community, you should act differently. If you don't act differently, then that means there was not a real desire, or that desire is no longer there that you wanted to change for God. When you get baptized with me, it shows that there was an outward, there's an outward showing of a desire to be changed for God. You have made the display that you were walking one direction in sin, and now you have the desire to walk 
toward God. So there's an outward change that happens, okay? But there's someone greater, and the someone greater is going to affect a change that's better than the change I'm helping you pull off, right? The change that's outwardly is maybe going to be temporary, but there's going to be a change that is greater, and it's going to be brought by someone that's greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I'm not even worthy to do a physical outward thing for this guy that's coming. There is nothing I can physically do, even down to as low level as being his slave and untying the straps of his sandals. That was literally the lowest. Okay, if you were the guy that was untying the straps of sandals as a slave, you were the lowest slave in the house by far. Okay, that was a very low level to be in society. You did not want to be at that level of low. And John says, I'm not even worthy to be at that level of low for him. There is literally nothing I can do to serve him in the way that he is going to be able to serve as the Messiah. I can't do anything to show that I've changed as far as he's concerned. So there's an outward change that we can do, yes, but there's a much more important change that's coming. He says he'll baptize you, not with water, not with an outward change, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He'll baptize you with it. So what does that mean? To be baptized with the Holy Spirit, it means that literally you're going to have the Spirit of God come into your soul itself and begin to affect change. There's going to be an inward change that's going to happen. So the desire that you have to follow after the Messiah, his job, his goal, his desire is not that you serve him. It's not that you do a bunch of things for him. It's that you give your life to him so that he can affect an inward change, not an outward change, an inward change of baptism by the Holy Spirit. You are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. There's going to be a a change that happens deep within. And when that change happens, you are also going to experience a change as if you were being changed like literally with fire. So what would fire do? What was fire used for? Now, obviously, burning the trees right? We cut down the trees with the axe. We just had a reference with fire earlier, and that reference to fire was that we're burning down the trees that are cut down because they don't make it. They're not the ones that really want to follow after God. But then we also have the change that comes with being baptized by the Holy Spirit in fire. There's going to be a fire that's going to purify you, literally from the inward. Any filth, any disease, any, anything that is holding you back from being able to serve God is going to be burned out. That idea of sin, Okay, whenever you have gold and you have a, maybe an impurity in that gold, you refine it with fire to get rid of any little bit of impurity. And then all of a sudden, once it is pure, there's nothing like it. You could break it up, you could melt it again, you could whatever, and there's not going to be any impurity in it. And John says that's what he's going to be doing in your life. It's not an outward change that solely maybe makes its way in where you're convincing the world around you that you're different, but you will literally be different from the inside. And then as you are different from the inside, there will be outward expression of that. But here's where it says this. He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. So here's this idea. We already said coming wrath. He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. And then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So we have another reference to fire. It's actually going back to the same reference of fire that we just talked about with the axe cutting down the tree. So this is a bad form of fire. You don't want to be in this form of fire. This is John preaching hellfire and brimstone. You will experience fire if you are not considered to be among the wheat. Because he's not going to take in to the barn anything other than wheat. And wheat here is talking about those that truly are saved, that give their life to the Lord, that give their life to the Messiah, that give their life to Jesus Christ, that trust him, that rely on his Holy Spirit, the work that he's going to do, the baptism that Jesus is going to bring through the Holy Spirit. If that has not happened in your life, if you have not surrendered your life to the Lord, then John says that you fall, you will fall into one of two categories. The ones that surrender their life to the Lord will be considered in this story here, the wheat. And the ones that do not consider, that do not give their life to the Lord, that do not surrender to the Messiah, that do not, at the end of the day, they are chaff and they will experience never-ending fire. And that still is going to be the same. So that word never-ending, that word never-ending is applied in this verse to the fire directly, Right? But at the same time, couldn't we say that there's going to be never-ending wheat in the barn? That you will forever be in the grace and the mercy of God if you are that wheat? 
You're going to be never-ending one way or the other. And that's the warning that John brings. Either you're going to be never-ending, you're going to be separated as wheat, you're going to be in the barn, the storehouse of the Lord, you're going to be in heaven forever, or you will experience never-ending fire as chaff. And that was the easiest way that John could describe this to the crowds. Because the crowds that would have come to him would have understood agriculture, right? They would have literally been able to picture what that looked like of the Messiah that is to come separating out the wheat from the chaff. And so as he explains this, the next verse is going to be one that really helps to bring this home, right? So John used many such warnings as he announced good news to the people. So you think that if he's, exp- if he's expressing a warning, now this is the New Living Translation that uses this. If anyone else has a Bible with you, you might have a different translation other than warnings. So does anyone else have any other word other than warnings? Because if you don't, the Greek actually has a word that, I mean, warnings is good because that's what he's doing. He is ultimately warning the people. But that word is a way different word than what you might think of when you hear the word warning. Because warning is usually, oh, there's something, you know, there's something bad ahead, or you've got this, you're going down the wrong path. Yeah, that's a warning, but there's something different that is used as a word. Does anyone else have a different word in the translation? The what? Exhorted, exhortation, yeah. So this word exhortation is the same word, when you look at the Greek, it's the same word as that evangelism and that good news in this. When you bring a message and it can be a good message. It could be a message of warning, and it, that's still a good message, is it not? Hey, small craft advisory. Who's going to go out and know a small craft today? Anybody? Anybody? Takers? No? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Captain Max says he will. So anyone on the boat with him this week, look at the weather. Don't trust his judgment, all right? So anyways, uh, but yeah. So small craft advisory. Now, you might think, oh, that's a warning. I don't like that. That takes away my fun. I was expecting to go out on the boat today. Um, Yeah, you could still go out on the boat, but the warning is don't. And actually, if you stay home, you're going to be comfortable. You won't be experiencing the same suffering you're experiencing now. That's a good message. That's a message that you would want to hear. You'd actually be very mad if the newscast today said, oh, bright sunny skies, Bahamas crossing, one foot, we're looking good. Everybody that wants to go over to the Bahamas today, feel free, you're going to have favorable winds. You'd be like, what are you talking about? There's no way. That's a rerun. We're, we're calling, we're calling that's, that's fault, fake news, right? Um, so anyways, that's, that, we would say no way. Well, this is the same thing with John. He says, I've got a message, I've got a warning. He's giving these warnings, but it's a good warning. It's a good message. And you could even say that this is a message of comfort. Because why is it a message of comfort? Because there's actually an opportunity for you right now here. There's an opportunity for you. You might have brought you, you might be here today and you're like, why am I here? The crowds came to John and he's like, what are you brood of snakes doing here? Who even warned you to be here today? I don't know. I got drug along. I thought there was going to be food. Right? So that's what happened with Jesus. He actually gives food. But anyways, I thought there was going to be something for me here today. And John says, actually, there is. And it's a message for you. It's a message, actually, that's very comfortable if you are counted among the wheat. It's a message that's very uncomfortable if you're counted among the chaff. But notice that in that verse, let's get back to it, that he's ready to separate it. He's not separated it. He's ready to separate it, which means it hasn't happened yet, which means that you still have an opportunity right now to take the desire that maybe God has placed in your heart to change and to make a change that's actually going to be a change that's affected for eternity. So here we go. Let me give you the word. I I told you that it was the word warnings. So here we have parakaleo, warnings, exhortations, comfort, a call, literally the, the phraseology here is to call beside. I'm calling you guys beside. There's a line that's drawn, and I, John, stand by the Jordan River, and my encouragement is for you to get off of the banks and join me in the river, repent, and turn to God. I'm calling you beside me right now, and you can either make the decision to do it, or you can make the decision not to. And if you make the decision to do it, then this thing I'm giving you is euangelizo, uh, good news. And it's always a good message when that word is used in the Bible. When it's talking about the angel talking to Mary, the angel talking to John's dad, the angel talking to anybody in the New Testament, 
this word gets used, it's good news. When the disciples go out and preach the good news of Jesus, this is the same word that's used. It's good news. We have the Messiah. He is here. There is good news. So I'm calling you beside me, John says, to make a change. If you want to make just an outward change, great. But all I'm going to be able to offer you is a baptism that is through water. And that's it. You're going to get wet. You might live a good life. That's great. But there's something coming. If you follow my baptism, the best you're going to get is what I'm able to offer. But I'm not even worthy to tie or untie the sandals of this next guy's shoes. And he's the Messiah. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, now he will determine. That's the determination of the wheat and the chaff. I don't make that decision, John said. This next guy does. And so that's the decision that you have to make today. So he preaches this message. And Luke is like, all right, John's done a really good job. You guys remember John. Let's not forget about one of the more important stories of somebody that John dealt with. He dealt with the crowds. He dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He dealt with the soldiers. He dealt with the corrupt tax collectors. And don't forget, he also dealt with Herod. Herod the Tetrarch comes in, okay, and he deals with him. Here, we'll get back to this in a second. So John publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he'd done. So he counted this as a wrong. He married his brother's wife. That's not supposed to be something that you would do, all right? Herod being the, the guy that's placed in charge of Galilee, that was already in of itself this whole big deal that the Romans had placed him in charge and he had swindled his way in and he himself was a cheater and a liar and all the things that John was already prophesying about. But then he's always calling this guy Herod out and he's like, this guy's awful. He says he's a king. He thinks he's a king. But he doesn't follow God's ways. Look, he even married his own brother's wife. Stole her right out from under him. Just because he wanted to. Alright, so Herod, as a result, puts John in prison, adding this sin to his many sins. And this is where then he stops, and he's going to actually then backtrack. And Jesus is about to come on the scene probably next week, if we go into Jesus getting baptized next week. So it's interesting that, John, that Luke throws this in here as kind of like this weird moment when we know that John's not still in prison when Jesus comes to get baptized. But he's letting us know, he's reminding us that, hey, just in case you forgot, it's not about John. Right, We're going to go to John baptizing Jesus, but we know the story of John. We'll finish out the story of John. John's actually going to get beheaded by Herod while he's in prison. So John is going to die. John is not the Messiah, but John preached to everybody. Nobody, he did not miss an opportunity to reach out and try to share this message with every single person that he could in the area, and this included Herod. He tried to reach out to the leader that stands among all these people and tell him that there's message also applies to him. And he rejected that message. So if he as a leader has rejected the message of the Messiah, then he's really not a leader worth following. It's the idea in that, right? So don't just look at the way that your leaders act. Just because got, John got thrown into prison does not mean that John's message is invalid. Does not mean that John's message is wrong. So Luke's kind of reminding us, hey, this is the John that Herod threw in prison. Don't forget that. But it doesn't negate his message. So let's go back here. So you're going the wrong way is the idea that John gives. Turn around and come back to the Lord. The Messiah is almost here, and through him you can really be changed. He preached that, like I said, to everybody. So if you want to make a change that will last forever, you need to repent and be cleansed through Christ. Not through the waters of baptism. That's just an outward profession. That's why we do it. It's a way of telling other people, hey, I have a desire to make a change. But that change now, because of Jesus Christ coming, that change now, because Jesus did die and shed his blood on the cross for our sins, that change now, because just like the shirt being black, he literally walks me to the Father, covering me, saying, this guy's okay, my blood is around him, he can come into your presence. Right? He, uh, God does not see me. He sees Jesus. And so because that is what is covering my life, because that is what is inside of me, there should be outward change. 
All right, and I was reminded this week, Isaiah chapter 40, we talked about that idea of comfort, that comfort that's coming. And the idea of the comfort coming is the Messiah is coming and he's going to affect inward change. And that message of comfort should be preached. And I told Ashley about it, I told Captain Mack about it, but I told you guys a little bit about Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon focused on that message of comfort and change. And he focused on the message that we as Christians should be the ones that have the most hope. When people see us in public, they should see that we have the most hope, right? Last, yesterday, we went and we dropped off this beautiful creation by Keone at the county fair, which is coming up, by the way. It's one of the best things in St. Lucie County. A bunch of people get together and strap together quick nuts and bolts of a massive rotating wheel that at any moment, well, anyways, you know how it is. Best thing in St. Lucie County. It's coming. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to it. But Keone went to submit an art project. He made a little tiger, water painting of a tiger back in the day. And it was actually kind of good. Like, for being his age that he was, it was like, wow, you actually did a good job. I'd, you know, put that as a sticker. Like, that'd be great. And so, uh, so we went to go take the display in. And just so interesting that, you know, like, people will give you exactly what you're supposed to do to submit this art project for the fair. And if you don't read the fine print, you'll submit it wrong. Um, so we showed up with this piece of paper, and the lady's at the desk, and she says, you know, you're supposed to have a mat board with that. That's in the fine print, but we were supposed to have a mat board for, uh, for a watercolor painting. So I was like, all right, well, well, we'll have to go get a mat board. I didn't say it like that, though. I grumbled. I wasn't very happy about it. My uh, two-second drop-off turned into an hour and a half of hunting a mat board, uh, going to Michael's, driving to Tradition, because uh, either way from the county uh, fairgrounds, it's, it's a haul to get to any sort of art store, right? So, it, of course, it has to be. It's like Vero or Tradition. So we went to Tradition, and uh, we went to Michael's, got a mat board, can't just get a mat board, though, um, because we cut down Keone's painting to kind of get rid of some rough edges. So we then needed to get construction paper to lay that on. And then we couldn't just use that. Uh, we decided, oh, we'll use double-sided tape because I thought for whatever reason that the mat board would, like, lay flat. And I don't know if I thought it would, like, snap together or what. But anyway, so I got mat board, got tape. So we tape everything to where it, like, looks good. And then I go, and I'm looking, and it's like, oh, we need glue. So then I need to go to Target to get glue. Lines in Target are crazy, but I wasn't spending the Michaels price for super glue. So I went to Target for the super glue. And finally, this thing, after, like, $30 investment, is ready to go for the county fair uh, to be judged, but to also hang up. And Keone was pretty excited. But my face did not show comfort, all right, and hope, all right, at this point. Hour and a half, and I'm in tradition for all y'all living in Port St. Lucie tradition, that's the worst. I hate driving that traffic. And so my face did not show comfort, all right? But then I had to think about Charles Spurgeon, and Charles Spurgeon would have told me in that moment, you know, you might as well just stayed home. There's no point in you being out in public if your face isn't showing the hope and the joy of the Lord, because that should be what it is that you're showing. Because ultimately, what I should have, I have the Holy Spirit living in me. And at any moment when things get tough, I should be able to be like, Spirit, I don't feel like smiling, and I don't feel like showing comfort, so it's going to be your work that's going to make it happen. John's baptism, if I was in John's baptism, yeah, I'll change from day to day. And that's okay. I'll just figure it out later, come back, you know, try to turn. But whenever the Holy Spirit is living within me, there's going to be conviction. And not only is there going to be conviction in the way that I'm living, but my wife, who is also so filled with the Holy Spirit and the conviction of God can share with me in that moment that I'm not living a Christ-like <laughs> attitude, right? Praise God that I have that. <laughs> so in that moment, she said, you know, Charles Spurgeon would have told you just to stay home. I was like, no. So anyways, just remember that. Yeah, she used it this week, Mac. I couldn't believe it. Um, so, but it showed she listened last week. So here's this thing here. You can silence the messenger, right? And there's a lot of things that will silence the messenger, but you can't silence the truth of the message. And uh, so sometimes we're going to need to bring conviction to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they can silence your message, but at the end of the day, they know you're right. Right? They've got the Holy Spirit living in them. They know you're right. But if God's working on somebody's life, okay, if he's opened their heart in any way, we don't know that. We don't know what's going on literally. Like you that are here, I have no clue what's going on directly in your life right now. You might have got drugged to church. You might be just standing here like, ah, I don't know. I followed the crowd today, right? I saw, I don't know if anyone, Tom, did you stand out in the corner and still beckon people in? Right, okay, give it up for Tom. It was raining. 
All right, so if you came because there was a crazy man standing out in the corner, maybe with an umbrella, waving people in, right? Okay, okay. So you thought to yourself just like what they thought about John the Baptist, but you're here. Okay, you braved, if you're just in the church, you're here, right? You braved the torrential hurricane. It does look like one, right? You, you're here. You don't know why. But at the same time, if you're here, this is, a, this is the reality. You might have heard something today that you're like, ah, I don't want to change my life. That's fine. John couldn't force you to either, the people to either. He couldn't force Herod to. And Herod took it so far to throw him in prison, and eventually, yeah, he got beheaded. All right? He, he tried to silence him. But the reality is, is that when the truth of the message is preached, it's not silenced. You might leave from here today thinking, I'm never going to think one more word about that, but I pray to God that that's not true in your life. If you need to give your life to the Lord, do it. Don't wait another second, because God is going to separate. There is a warning. It is true. He is going to separate. And when, you, and when you die or when the Lord comes back, that's the moment where you have no ability to make a change. But right now, just like it said where the Messiah is coming, John said the Messiah is coming. Well, he's already come. But in this moment, it's a grace period right now. You understand that? Like this is like halftime. Like you're getting a chance to breathe. And when he comes back, it's going to be full force. And in that moment, he is separating the wheat from the chaff. And you will either experience the goodness of being in God's barn, or you're going to experience unquenchable fire. And it's not like the fire I get to experience now. The fire now changes me every day and makes me better. It's a good fire. I like this fire. But there will be a fire one day where it's unquenchable, it's never ending, and, um, and I don't want you to have to be in that. And so my encouragement is to you, there's a line. Get on the other side of the line. Be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Make a change that will last forever. Repent and be cleansed through Christ. If you will, please bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your encouragement that's found in the Word. God, the message that you've given through John is a message, yes, to change. But Father, that message that you gave through John is so much more than that. It's to give our lives, to change our eternity forever. And Father, you've called us to surrender everything that we know about ourselves, God, to surrender just what we think. I mean, to, to have the idea that we have the ability right now to trust your word. And Father, one day you are going to come back and you are going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Father, help us to just look into our own heart. Holy Spirit, right now you have the ability to convict and say, you need to make that decision. You also have the ability right now, Holy Spirit, to convict and say to our hearts, you've made that decision well done. Now live with me, live for me. Father, right now I just ask that we not just make an outward change. Help us to make an inward change that will last forever. And as we share this gospel message with others, we know the message will not truly be silenced, even though we might be. And Father, I just pray for your blessing in this as we go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.